like the one thing that masculinity always has in common is uh, <laughs> the oppression of women. That's like a really consistent theme. Hello and welcome. I'm Adrian Dobb. And I'm Moira Donigan. And whether we like it or not, we are in bed with the right. Today is the long-awaited sequel to our pilot episode on masculinity, uh, to be followed by many more episodes on masculinity. <laughs> you know, it's like this relates, I would say, to um, the first one, the way aliens relates to alien. Right? There's an S, and uh, there's a lot more things bursting out of people. Anyway, that's uh, that's that's how I see this episode going. Yeah, so in our last episode, we talked about, you know, a recent media panic over the crisis of masculinity. And we did sort of a survey of where this concept of masculinity and crisis has come from, what its history looks like, when it becomes an emergency and when it's not. And then I think one of the things we sort of touched on was this taxonomy I've been working on with in my own work for a little while now, which is like the three buckets of conservative masculinity, like the three buckets of like gender conservatism that men sort of put themselves into. And we've called one the preacher, one the pervert, and one is the creep. Yeah. And today we're going to dive into some like uh, illustrative texts about sort of the intellectual foundations, the biggest assumptions, the major themes of these three kinds of, of right-wing manhood and see if we can like yeah. tease out a little more about what they are. Yeah, but maybe just to give people a frame of reference before we delve into the nitty-gritty here, like let's sort of talk a little bit about who sort of the avatars of this are. So who are people asked to picture here? So the, the preacher is basically like, think of Mike Pence. If you're not wild about women, but you call your wife mother, like y you might fall in that bucket. Who's the creep? The creep is somebody who has a sense of sort of like aggrieved self-regard. So I think of Elon Musk is sort of the main one, somebody who thinks that he is special and different, but a corrupted and, and unworthy world doesn't recognize him. This is often people yeah. with like a lot of investment in race science or evolutionary psychology. Yeah. In some ways, the sources of legitimation that are different there, right? One looks to the Bible. The other one is going to look anywhere but the Bible, basically. It's going to look to some kind of crank book or some research that they barely understood to bolster their claims. And then our third type? Our third type is the pervert who demonstrates his masculinity through a kind of like aggressive, dominant, often like forceful and violent sexuality. Right. Kind of a Dionysian. We'll talk about this quite a bit more when we talk about Nietzsche uh, in, in a future episode. As I tried to explain last time is that I think that, you know, even though these guys don't like each other, I think they often have cosmetically different versions of what's essentially the same project. Yeah. Women end up miraculously not being subjects in all these. So you're like, huh. Right. But what they are is sites of proving masculine power, right? The control and ownership and domination of women are uh, like theaters for the exercise of masculinity mm -hmm. in basically every kind of masculinity that we're going to go over. Like the one thing that masculinity always has in common is uh, <laughs> the oppression of women. That's like a really consistent right, theme. Right. I think something that we are going to have to sort of tease out is the extent to which women themselves are supposed to be the audience for 
these demonstrations of masculinity and the extent to which masculinity is being demonstrated on women yeah. for an audience of other men. Yeah. One other thing that maybe on sort of a meta level we could talk about is that when we did think about the pervert, we kind of bounced ideas back and forth. And that was the bucket where we came up with the most names of women, right? Like where basically that is by now, like let boys be boys is almost like always a woman telling you that in the public discourse. Like there's a very interesting thing uh, happening there where it's like the preacher tends to be a cis white dude still. Yeah, you know, there are definitely versions of conservative femininity that rely very heavily on biblical authority, on ideas of divine ordination of gender roles, right? And and you'll see women sort of appropriating preacher masculinity on the right yeah. in order to like access public power. I will say that like where you see more women advocating for like pervert masculinity is really on the left yeah, where yeah. like there has been sort of a mirror image of what like Phyllis Schlafly did yeah. with religious conservatism on the right. You'll see people like, you know, Camille Paglia <laughs> uh, doing on the putative left, you know, uh, somebody coming from a left wing yeah. perspective. And, you know, a lot of these guys in the pervert bucket are on the political left, even though they have mm. very reactionary, very conservative ideas about uh, gender itself yeah. and about preserving gender as a hierarchy. There's a lot to dig into. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things is, of course, that like anyone who makes these kinds of claims are, and I think you're pointing to that, is already kind of positioning themselves in like why they are allowed to talk publicly about this at all, right? Schlafly's kind of positionality, which I agree, kind of is the preacher positionality, always was a little bit self-contradictory, right? Like she always claimed like, oh, if my husband needs me at home to cook, I won't give this talk. And of course that was bullshit. She was an important public <laughs> intellectual. Like, like yeah. I, I don't know what her husband did, but like surely she made the bucks in that relationship, right? But it was this self-contradictory kind of position where you're like, I am here to tell you that I should not be allowed to tell you anything. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's an odd one, right? Whereas like the libertine always gets to make it. And we'll we'll talk about this. That basically of the three folks we're going to read today or talk about today, like the libertine is the one who can, sort of can't seem to shut the fuck up about any of this, right? Like, oh, but I think he's got a lot of his own contradictions as well. So I'm excited to dive into them. I think so. Yeah. Well, should we start? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, my example of the creep is sort of the the one you're thinking of. So like, my apologies to listeners for like not kind of shocking you. We have a couple of deep cuts here and that's fun. This is not a deep cut. This is Jordan fucking Peterson. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Can you taxonomize the creep for me and tell me why Jordan Peterson personifies the elements of the creep? So, I mean, it's a little tricky, right? Because he's not an evolutionary psychologist. He's not like, you know, here's what our genes are telling us to do. But he makes these very basic points about supposed gender roles from this authority of the psychiatrist, right? Like he peppers his discourse with like things that allegedly his patients told him, which, uh, you know, has a long history, right? This is how Freudians argued, right? Here's the thing I, I had happen on the couch to, you know, people reared on, let's say, Excel spreadsheets for science or whatever with test results might find that it may not sound that scientific, but like, you know, it's not, not like sort of pseudoscience, like the, the bell curve is or something like that. But it comes with that premature of like, this man has done some very serious research, right? Like he's not just telling you to clean up your room. He's telling you your room for science. And we should say that Jordan Peterson is a psychologist. He's Canadian. He did teach for a long time at the University of Toronto, yeah. I believe. Yep. And so he has the he has the authority of professor. Yeah. You know, that is like a title he has. Yeah. And I mean, this is 
what he owes his prominence to, right? The very first YouTube clip of his, I think that went viral in something like 2016, 17 was Professor Against Political Correctness. I might get the title wrong, but like the word professor was in there, right? That, that was how he sold himself. He was not whatever Joe Sixpack is in Canada, Joe Poutine or whatever. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was, was not, he's not a regular guy. He's got yeah. this epistemic authority. He's got institutional authority. Yeah. And he is wielding that in the service of gender conservatism, which has made him very, very popular online. Extremely popular. And he, the other thing that makes him an interesting creep is that he walks an interesting line between somewhat judgmentally between this weird kind of dominance behavior. Like he he keeps like his Twitter is just like him wanting to punch people constantly, even though like, you know, people who have not seen me, I'm I'm the scrawniest man on earth. And I don't think I'd be like that afraid of being in a fist fight with Jordan Peterson. But then the other thing that happens is that like the man just like is the waterworks. He weeps a lot. He cries a lot. Yeah. I, I mean there was a there's a clip of him crying about Elliot Page for some reason, like that that set him over the oh, edge. Oh, right. Elliot Page's transition was a great yeah. offense yeah. to Jordan Peterson, who I guess was uh, like sexually attracted to a pre-transition Elliot Page. Yeah, maybe uh, a huge Juno fan, who knows? I don't know, yeah. The other thing is that Jordan Peterson is taken seriously. There was a brief weird moment when he was like sort of taken seriously by, you know, people like David Brooks and, you know, was sort of like in... The Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of died down. And now I feel like his fame is identical almost with people who are certain affinities with technology and specifically with the tech industry. The very online, like Jordan Peterson. Yes. And he posits his gender conservative viewpoint, his sort of prescription for a masculine life, like really clearly as self-help. Yeah. Especially above all in that book, well, not initially, but like famously in that book, 12 Rules for which Life. Which is this big blockbuster which is book. massive bestseller. From 2018. 2018. So yeah, it's been translated into like dozens of languages, extremely successful, and is essentially self-help for men. I think very explicitly for men. And maybe I'll just read a passage just to give you a sense of what, what Jordan Peterson means when he thinks about a crisis of masculinity. I'm not sure he ever uses that word, but like, here, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. Boys are suffering in the modern world. They are more disobedient negatively or more independent positively than girls. They suffer for this throughout their pre-university educational career. They are less agreeable, agreeableness being a personality trait associated with compassion, empathy, and avoidance of conflict, and less susceptible to anxiety and depression, at least after both sexes hit puberty. Boys' interests tilt towards things. Girls' interests tilt towards people. Strikingly, these differences, strongly influenced by biological factors, are most pronounced in the Scandinavian societies where gender equality has been pushed hardest. This is the opposite of what would be expected by those who insist ever more loudly that gender is a social construct. It isn't. This isn't the debate the data are in. So that's uh, Jordan Peterson, Rules for Life. He's like gaveling. He's like, it is biological determinism, like bam, like a yeah. judge. So he does say strongly influenced by biological factors. He says that yeah. gender is something in the body that you can't escape, which does sort of 
hint at an evolutionary psychology yeah exactly justification even though he doesn't really make that argument no and the other thing that he of course does is i mean he doesn't come out and say here it's feminism's fault but he says like basically modernity is feminized our modern world is feminized it is societalized we, we spend a lot more time around other people and that is bad for men because men are really good at clubbing things on the head and dragging them back to their cave but like suddenly you're making them type on a computer <laughs> I have fond memories of my own caveman days. I recall them well of the <laughs> mid eighties, you know, uh, but yeah. So like there's something about in the deep recesses of male memory that basically modernity is just too fucking femi for, right? I don't think he would hide this. Like what's behind this is someone like Carl Jung, right? Like right. I, I think there's on the one hand, I don't know if it's entirely about genes, like biology of genes. It's about this kind of collective memory that is sort of passed down from us, like this collective unconscious that's sort of like passed down from generation to generation that's definitely here which is sort of like the thing that freud and jung really kind of split over freud has a conception of this too but his is way more complicated than jung's jung really thought that like people we'll talk about this in our episode but people sort of carry like almost genetically sort of remnants of memories from their ancestors right and freud thought well that's not quite true we do pass on something to our distant offspring, but not like that. So I think it's amazing stuff. I, I find this passage interesting also because it's so clear what conclusion he's trying to run away from, right? Like a lot of what he's saying here is probably not wrong. I want him to define his terms. I don't know what any of this is supposed to exactly mean. It feels in the beginning, like he might say, and this is something that you can ha hear feminists say, this is something you can hear leftists say, right? That like our modern world is less deferential to a certain traditional construction of masculinity, right? Which is an interpretation that we could still argue with because it assumes that there's one traditional conception of masculinity, right? But we could say like, yeah, people have been socialized in these outdated forms of masculinity that then the modern world kind of punishes them for, right? That's an argument that people have made on the left and it's interesting as far as it goes, but that's not what he's saying here, right? Those aspects of masculinity that the modern world is inhospitable to are, as he says, and as he pointed out, strongly influenced by biological factors, right? It sounds like a defense of certain cultural codes, but it's actually something different. It's a warning about a pathological distortion of our biological destiny, right? Like this is what we're right. meant to be and meant to be doing. And we are falling short of it in modernity because we've become unnatural, right? We've, we're no longer doing things the way they're meant to be done. And I mean, for people who are hearing certain echoes here, this is obviously something that like, succeeds online quite well. Our friends and colleagues over at the podcast maintenance phase always point out that like this idea that like something in our present way of living falls away from what we're quote unquote naturally supposed to do is extremely powerful online precisely because we encounter that world through something that feels so stridently and openly artificial, right? We're staring at our right. computer screens like no one has ever been like, ah, I am one with nature <laughs> while staring at my phone, right? Right. It reminded me of veganism, actually, when you were talking about yeah, this like, yeah. uh, imagined, pure, pre-social past. And Dorian Peterson himself very famously went on an all-meat all meat diet, diet that sent him into some sort of coma, and he was in a Russian hospital for a while, a very... Yeah elaborate and dark this is not a reach is what i am to say he is very clearly trying to approximate a more pure like prehistorical yeah. uh, vision of the self yeah and so i think the and the health 
influenceriness of this, right, is big in 12 Rules for Life too, right? He is making claims about health, which is a concept that we're going to come up against again and again. And that's not an accident, right? Because it allows what you and I might think of as progress, right, as pathology. It says, like, this is actually disease. You're going to suffer from this. I'm going to read a, a passage from a book by Anthony Ludovici from 1927, Man, an Indictment. Love the title. Uh, <laughs> they, they didn't wow. fuck around in the 20s. He's like, <laughs> got a lot of things to say to men. Uh, was, uh, yeah. Um, so the conclusion that the characteristics, quote, arising out of sexual dimorphism. So, you know, right, the, the fact that there are men and only men and women, right? Um, that's what he's talking about here, are very deeply embedded in our natures and cannot therefore be altered in a day, in a generation, or even in a century. Apparent modifications of these characteristics, which alter the relations of the sexes, are therefore more likely to be morbid and transient than normal and permanent, right? That to me is what Peterson is drawing on here, right? The idea that like these shifts where you and I might say, yes, over the last two, three hundred years, several shifts have taken place and we live with the consequences of those shifts. They're like, no, in the long durée of human evolution that is but a microsecond and to change things that quickly can only lead to confusion and or to disease right it's as he says it's it's more likely to be morbid and transient right these are our new fads here's a question i have that i always have about this sort of evocation of a trans historical like pre-social masculinity which is that like if these categorizations of masculinity and femininity are so overwhelmingly historically powerful and so like written into our fates how did we wind up abandoning them like where did who gave us this promethean power yeah to like subvert our own natures because i don't think betty friedan was capable of quite that much right there the implication is is always as you're saying it's like there's a subterranean implication that feminism fucked up nature and that's yeah. actually ascribing feminism a, a ton of power that I don't yeah. think it, it, it can reasonably be said to have. Well, yeah, it's definitely a pathologization, right? Like a medicalization of, well, the fact that society just fucking changes from time to time, right? Like, it's it, you know, it's like, sorry, bud. Like, yeah, like this is not the world I grew up in. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, have you met time? Uh, that's what That's what does it. Right. It also like requires sort of an erasure of the middle parts of history. There's this like exactly. imagined caveman past, which is good. And there's modernity, which is bad. And the like eons of changing and permutation that have happened in between, like necessarily have to be erased, right? Yeah. Because if all of human history is a series of like mutually reinforcing and informing changes, then your idea of a static, pre-social, pure past becomes kind of unstable yeah yeah i mean so there's two points i think i'd I'd make about that so one is this is why i think i mean i don't want to speak for all historians but i think why you don't get you don't hear from historians that often about this right like historians of masculinity do exist that they basically were like well i'm sorry are you talking about the 1570s or the 1590s right like they're very attuned to the fact that this shit always changes but of course like a little bit in defense of jordan oh god what am i saying a little bit in defense of jordan (laughs) peterson go for it yeah like of course, like the one place where this is true, right? Like I have knowledge of what the world view and the world of my parents is like, and I have a slightly fainter sense of what my grandparents' life and world must have been like. 
that becomes extremely hazy when I get to my great grandparents and a great, great grandparents. I'm like, I have no fucking clue what they were even called. Right. So yeah. like that is in our own psychology, in our own family, this does tend to be true, right? That like things disappear into the haze of the forever, like very quickly in either direction, right? Like I have a, I, I know a lot about my own daughter. I have a conception of what her children could be like, but then it gets very fucking hazy. I'm like, I'm guessing they'll have transporter beams and, uh, uh, you know, tachyon impulses or whatever. I don't know. Like I've, I, I've not watched that much Star Trek, right? Like in some way, it kind of makes sense that if, of all people, someone who studied a lot of psychology would find this persuasive, but that's maybe giving him too much credit because like there's a bunch of people who did not, uh, you know, go in for their Freud who still act as though like until Seneca falls, basically, like <laughs> humanity had like one way of doing things and then like, yeah. It was so, fine until you meddling kids came around. Yeah. <laughs> the second point I'd make is just that in, in some way with someone like Peterson, I think that feminism to him, and this is, he's gonna he's taking that from Nietzsche to some extent, and we'll talk about that in our episode on Nietzsche. He doesn't think that it's all feminism's fault. He thinks that feminism is like a symptom of a bigger problem, which is modernity, right? And he thinks that like, yeah, what has happened is like, you know, humanity used to be dominated by far more organic and sort of like spontaneously grown structures, right? It used to be a lot more beholden to tradition. And Feminism destroyed both of these, but so did industrialization, so did massification, so did urbanization. And I'm pretty sure Jordan Peterson isn't wild about any of those either, right? So like they often sort of see it as one more, right? These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse are basically feminism. There's socialism always in there, right? Because it makes everyone the same, right? Like, so I don't think they are giving Betty Friedan all this power. Uh, that'd be nice. It'd be lovely. Uh, but no, they're, they're basically saying- Oh, I don't, I don't know how lovely, but you know, I can think of other people I'd rather give it to. You know. Yeah, but I mean, like, but it's in some way, like, it's even worse because it's saying, like, oh, basically, it's not that even the agency of women is threatening us. It's like the women are grabbing this agency because of this bigger, this bigger shift in in Western civilization, right? Bigger corruption, yeah. yeah. And women are just symptoms or tools, which I think we'll come back exactly. to over and over. And and I like that you're really encapsulating what I think makes creep the appropriate label for this kind of masculinity, which is that he is advocating really for a total transformation it's like a very radical vision if you take it to its logical conclusion right yeah like you start asking questions like well how does jordan peterson feel about like settled agriculture yeah. you know it's like uh he's he's a uh, like very expansive very ambitious in his pursuit of a pure of, of a purity like a form of masculine purity yes and no right i mean like on the other hand he doesn't lay that out, I think, in the book ever. And and I don't know if he's ever said publicly, like, yeah, the implications of this that you're drawing out are terrifying. But that's the that is the other thing about these sort of anti-modernity thrusts of these creeps. You get that a little bit also in people like Curtis Yarwin, who's another yeah. sort of big tech creep. They're basically unhappy with certain aspects of modern society without saying what that would mean. It is a deeply it's reactionary politically, but it's also reactionary just in its own affect right it's basically pouting it's like i don't like all these things we did i'm just gonna be in my in the corner i'm gonna take my toys and going home right like like that's true if you drew out the political implications of this is fucking terrifying they very rarely well yarwin does but like largely these people don't do it right they're just like i just want to register that i'm unhappy with this right like it's it's like those weird like trad accounts on twitter which are always like What's keeping our churches from looking like this? And when you're like, you're a fucking fascist, like, I just like good, nice things. Is that so bad, right? It's like, 
well, yeah, the implication is obvious, but it's quite possible you're lying to yourself about it too. Yeah, I'm wondering if, because some of these guys will come out and say like, actually, I think we should use all of Silicon Valley's new technology to instill a monarchy <laughs> and uh you know yeah exactly and, yeah. and some of them just go out right out and say i think that's curtis yarwin does identify as a monarchist and that's you know the sort of peter thiel of it yeah. all is that there are people who are sort of avowedly and you know i guess to some degree you have to say honestly taking these ideas to their logical conclusion but with people like peterson do you think that he's concealing his hand or do you think that he hasn't thought that far ahead i think it's i think it's a mixture of the two i think that if you're privileged enough in society you don't have to really answer that question for yourself, right? Like, might it be that some of these people really would kind of gulp if like they woke up one morning and their vision was realized? Like it's possible, right? Like it is very noticeable that this kind of conservative dissidence, right? The do it without me, right? Like is an extremely pretty easy gesture because you don't like have to ever take responsibility for anything. And that extends to someone like Peter Thiel, right? Who like Right, big Trump booster, and he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm disappointed about him. Like, I I don't I don't support this anymore." It's like this is always how it goes. Like, I had high hopes, and then I got disappointed. Yeah, it's a fucking easy grift in order to like never have to take responsibility for anything that you know you claim to have want to have happened. And of course, like part of this is like pâté le bourgeois, right? Like, it's the idea is yeah. you want to you want to trigger the libs, right? And like that that's part of the creep persona too. That like they're like. How serious am I? Lol, that's for you to find out, you know, snowflake, right? And it's like, eh, I don't know. Like, I feel like whether or not that claim is being made seriously or not is pretty central. And I have a really hard time <laughs> grappling with thought that's like always like one step away from just like declaring they just did it for the lols, right? I mean, I don't read Immanuel Kant and he's like, lol, you're still reading my first critique. It was all a joke, right? You're like, well, fuck you. I'm not reading this, right? Like, but I think that that's part of the creep too, that like, you know, you never know, like, does Peter Thiel really want to abolish women's suffrage? You, you know? never know how sincere they are. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, part of what they do is they hide behind deniability. I like your point out of like triggering the libs, owning the libs, because this is going to be a recurring theme. It's like each bucket of conservative masculinity has its own style of like deliberately provoking and rejecting and sort of reveling in the rejection of like liberal banners right, right? like the yeah. preach preacher says he does it you know out of christian principle the creep will deny whether he means it or not and the perv will do it and claim that you know this is a uh, his own irrepressible authenticity but they they all require and solicit this like outraged rejection by like a uh, perceived ideological enemies yeah and, and with peterson like the the fact that it's really hard to tell what he means and how he means it is, I think, far more central than maybe even for the other two people we're going to look at, because in some way he has real trouble with the meaning of meaning. For that, I kind of wanted to briefly talk about a different book that's maybe was less of a bestseller. Let's say this is Peterson's first book, Maps of Meaning from 1999. Was this his dissertation? It probably was, yeah. I mean, it's, it's long as hell, so I can't imagine that um, it's like 600 pages of basically kind of a pop Jungianism, I would say. And 
frankly, some of the most unreadable pro. And I mean, you know, literature professor speaking here. I've seen some unreadable prose in my life, and this is fucking grim. Yeah, the excerpt that you put in our planning doc. I was, I had to read it like four times. I was like, wait, like trying to diagram these sentences yeah. is very difficult. So in some way, I might do like the literature professor here thing here, and like I'll read the whole passage, and I, I would invite our listeners to kind of think about like just let it work on them. Like even if you're not following, which you well, very well might not, and it's not your fault, but like just see how the, what the language is doing, right? So uh, this is from page 137 of his book. Mythic symbols of the chaos of the beginning are imaginative pictures whose purpose is representation of a paradoxical totality, a state, which is already to say something too determinate, self-contained, uniform, and complete, where everything now distinct resides in union, a state where being and non-being, beginning and end, matter and energy, spirit and body, consciousness and unconsciousness, femininity and masculinity, night and day, remain compounded prior to their discrimination into the separable elements of experience. In this state, quotation marks, all conceivable pairs of opposites and contradictory forces exist together within the all-encompassing embrace of an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and altogether mysterious God. So, Wow. <laughs> That's deep, man. Yeah. We could say a lot about this. We could do we could do a lot to parse it. But I think the, the first thing that I hope people are noticing is he revels in these like it's this, it's this, it's this, right? Like like we got get to God, we get to right being and non-being, beginning and end, matter and energy, spirit and body, consciousness and unconscious, and then also of course masculinity and femininity. With Peterson often get these kind of lists. What he I think he's thinking about here, you know, just to give you a little bit of a, of a gloss on this passage, I don't want to just sort of like make fun of it because it's like ultimately not a not probably not wrong as a point. It's just I don't think it proves what he thinks it proves. This is basically, are you familiar with Tohu Wabohu? No. I hope I'm not butchering that, but that is the original of when a Genesis book one, chapter two is rendered as without form and void, right? In the beginning, the world was without form and void and the spirit of God floated upon the face of the deep. And then basically, right, God says, let there be light and he divided the light from darkness, right? Like he's saying like, there is this image, this idea, he's right to say that it's not a state. There's this idea of a of a something that precedes the divisions that we make. I think he's right to say that this idea exists, but you'll see, see as he goes on that basically he thinks this idea must exist and that in fact, it characterizes reality, right? Like you might say like, oh yeah, from a mythological standpoint, like human beings do often come up with these stories about where like things that we take to be absolutely opposed to each other were not opposed once upon a time, right? And then something happened to split them apart, right? Like that's an interesting enough point, right? For a comparative mythologist, for instance. But he will end up saying that like, oh no, the making of distinction is actually the thing that we have to do this. And it really actually describes reality. Right. So this is important because like, you know, another way of put tohu wabohu is just chaos. Right. And with chaos, it happens all the time in Peterson and it shows up all the time in the 12 rules of life. It's easy to sort of think like he thinks, oh, without this, we will have chaos. He's not necessarily thinking, oh, like people are going to like throw trash cans through shop windows or something like that. Right. Like, oh, this is chaos in here. He's probably thinking of this. He's thinking of indistinction right? Though, spoiler alert, it very quickly becomes a social description, right? Like he's also thinking of, of garbage cans put through shop windows. So it's this grand speculation about the origins of what human beings do when they make the world mean something, right? When they sort of try to make sense of the world. And basically, it's a theodicy of the binary. It's saying, not, not necessarily of the, of the gender binary, but of like any binaries. What human meaning making is dependent on is us to say, 
it's A, not B, right? Like that's that's all we do. And that's, I think, what he means by maps of meaning, I, as best I can tell from the 180 pages of this. In fairness, he is listing the gender binary as one Absolutely, of the most yeah, foundational yeah. of these divisions. Exactly. And I, But I think it, this whole thing gets at what's so odd about Peterson, and, and it feels perfect for our historic moment, right? Like he doesn't say that these are conceptual divisions of our world that are true and accurate. They're rather the ones we need to cling to in order to live, even if they are totally bunk, right? Even if they're complete bullshit, we have to stick to them. Why? Well, because we've always clung to them, basically. They're in our inheritance. They are our patrimony, our conceptual patrimony, right? This is actually a fairly old project in its own right, and it's ironically a modern one, right? Like the Romantics, especially in Germany, but but also in the UK, right? Like I think of someone like Friedrich Wilhelm Josef Schelling, like we're interested in this project of a new mythology, right? Moderns, they thought, had broken away from myths and that had destroyed a certain coherence in our way of being in the world, right? And we have to fix it. But of course, the Romantics thought that meant that you had to create a new mythology. And we'll see that when we talk about Nietzsche. Like this is supposed to be like, you got to come up with new stories. They don't have to be true, but they have to be they have to be meaning making. They knew that you couldn't just go back, right? So they wanted to find mythic forms that were adequate to the modern age and that you know weren't the old ones, right? And Peterson instead wants to just turn back the clock, right? He's like in order to keep chaos at bay, in order to make meaning, make sense of our world, in order to reassert our place in it, we have to will yourself to believe in absolute bullshit, knowing that it is bullshit. And once you've convinced yourself that this bullshit is real, the world will magically become a better place. That's pretty insane to me. Is this also from Maps of Meaning, this other excerpt you put in the doc here? Yeah, exactly. So here's one more if people want to hear more Maps of Meaning. This is from page 292. And again, this has femininity in it. It gives you a sense of how basically the, the gender binary works into this, right? All right, I, I read it. Uh, Light and darkness constitute mythic totality. Order and chaos and paradoxical union provide primordial elements of the entire experiential universe. Light is illumination, inspiration. Darkness, ignorance, and degeneration. Light is the newly risen sun, the eternal victor of the endless cyclical battle with the serpent of the night. It is the savior, the mythic hero, the deliverer of humanity. Light is gold, the king of metals, pure and incorruptible, a symbol for civilized value itself. Light is Apollo, the sun king, god of enlightenment, clarity, and focus. Spirit opposed to black matter, bright masculinity opposed to the dark and unconscious feminine. Light is Marduk, the Babylonian hero, god of the morning and spring day who struggles against Tiamat, monstrous goddess of death. I can't go yeah. on. <laughs> it goes on into Egypt, but like, you, you get the yeah, idea. He's accumulating <laughs> all of these, which also gives his own... Litany is this like transhistoric grandeur. Yeah. And it's basically just saying like, this goes in column A and this goes in column B. This also goes in column A and this goes in column yeah. B. You're like, oh my God. Yeah, he evokes everything and also imposes a very simplistic classification on it all. And you can see why this honestly, I mean, this, I say this now as someone who's written a book about the tech industry, why this catches on with tech people who like didn't take a whole lot of humanities classes, but actually love kind of the depth of thinking that deep humanistic learning can, whether fairly or unfairly, convey. This is a dumb person's idea of a smart text, yeah. right? It's like, yeah, congratulations, but like that was on hell of a ride on Wikipedia, wasn't it? Put in the bennies and just click on open Wikipedia and just let it fucking rip. But like, it's 
it's ultimately saying like things fall into column A or column B, one having to do with order and enlightenment, the other having to do with its opposite. Like, congratulations, but like that that could have been that could have been a footnote. I'm interested in Jordan's or I'm sorry, Jordan Peterson's characterization of femininity as chaos. Yeah, because this is like whether masculinity is order or whether it's it's like imposed discipline order or whether it is authentic, generative, like vivifying chaos is something that we're going to come back to That's again. Right. Because masculinity theorists can't really, or like masculinity advocates on the right, can't really decide what they want it to be. Yeah. Uh, and they switch between whether they want it to be super ego or id. Yeah. Uh, kind of a lot. <laughs> uh, and and Jordan seems, or Peterson, God, I keep calling him by his first name, like we went to high school together, but Jordan yeah. Peterson we seems very invested, at least here, in this idea of masculinity as an order to which there is there must be a kind of like a dutiful submission right the idea that yeah, like, yeah. we know this meaning making is bullshit but we are going to adhere to it anyway that's kind of that's kind of self-advocating right it's a little bit yeah. of a like get on your knees which i think could bring us nicely to our part two i think that, that that's exactly right and it also i think it makes so obviously there's like 19 years separating maps of meaning and 12 rules of life. But like the idea that like, this isn't just, I mean, like, yes, women are definitely not being treated very, very nicely here, but it's also above all an admonition to young men, right? As you say, like it's, it's about your masculinity cannot be chaos. What you need to write, like, why do you need to clean your room? Cause like, well, cause Marduk brings order into feminine darkness, like Horus who fights against evil and redeems the father i mean whatever right? like, um, yeah yeah this isn't this isn't saying like oh do let dudes be dudes it's like no 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 dudes have to like as you say believe in this bullshit in order to discipline their own masculinity so like both versions of that masculinity are in there but he's saying you gotta like you gotta learn this basically but of course as you're pointing out like it's really hard to tell why we should believe this, right? Like, why is this true, right? Like, if he means that our symbolic and metaphoric system, right, what we in the biz call semiotics, tend to categorize things this way, right? Like, yes, like there is a sense that like among the Greeks, masculine principles were the ordering principles, right? If you think about someone like Aristotle about what sperm and egg do, he thought like the sperm orders the material around. That's like what, that's it's the form, right? Not what actually happens in right. case any yeah, of our right. listeners missed yes. uh, fifth grade health Aristotle class. Aristotle yeah. was in fact incorrect. <laughs> but, um, but he, again and again, but that basically means like that's, that's how societies have sometimes made meaning. But then again, he uses it, uses the term means to say like, he uses it basically in the transitive sense, you know, right? It causes something. It's really interesting because that's the, that slip is basically the difference between a descriptive and a normative claim, right? Is this, for better or for worse, how humans of certain cultures have understood people's place in the universe? Or is it an accurate understanding of our place in that universe? And like, it's a very interesting kind of thing. Like he gets in his defense of these old binaries, he goes back and forth between like, like we must believe this or else we'll all dissolve into puddles of like Dionysian like fuckery. And at other times he's like, oh no, this is actually true. And you're like, Jordan, that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, let's let's leave him there. We'll be back with Dr. Peterson at some point. <laughs> I'm interested that there is this slippage between I'm telling the truth. And I am providing you a quasi-arbitrary structure for yeah. for ordering your life. Or it's either an, an immutable 
like forceful truth about the world or it's a convenient tool among other tools and there's like these are irreconcilable positions that he nevertheless slips back and yeah. forth between yeah why why those myths there's also the myth of the matriarchate why why not just like reorder society to be a matriarchate because like that's also not true like th that I mean, also but is come historically. on come on adrian you know why he doesn't choose the matriarchate i, I know that yeah <laughs> And that gets us, I think, to our second example, the preacher, because he's still like he believes in one true religion. That's the only way. If you're like, we have to believe a bullshit myth and it's this one. Well, congratulations. You just invented religion, right? Like, like you basically came up with like what elevates this myth above all others is that it's been revealed to you. Right. It's revelation. Yeah. He has that still in the background without... It seems to me, well, I guess he's taken a kind of Christian turn, but oh, has it he? seems like even well before. Yeah, I think so. There's a video of him crying about it. I didn't, I didn't watch it. <laughs> I can't do it. Well, this. the creep, the creep is usually not Christian. The creep is, I think, yeah, like an interesting factor. Sometimes he tries to revive like Europaganism as part of like a white supremacist mm -hmm. effort. More often uh -huh. he turns to the sort of dry rationalism he sees in science being like dispassionate and Christianity, of course, involves quite a bit of passion yeah. passion that some some uh masculinist preacher men men in our second bucket of conservative masculinity have like actually deemed a little bit effeminate and have tried to sort yeah, of wrestle yeah. back for these masculine virtues so you want to talk about uh bucket two Who's behind door number two, bachelor number two? Behind door number two, we have a different kind of, and I have to say that like, maybe you read the same book I did. I don't know much about this guy. Um, it's kind of an old book by now. It came out the same year as Maps of Meaning. This is Leon J. Pottles, The Church Impotent. Um, the whole book is online on his website if people want to read it. Who is Pottles? What do we know about him? Very little. He seems to be a kind of a conservative intellectual. I don't think he has an institutional affiliation. He has a PhD in English that emerges pretty clearly in the in the book. He was raised Catholic, but as one, one reviewer of his book back in the day noted, quote, now seems to be one of his own statistics of male Christian disaffection. So he's like, where Peterson is a putatively anti-religious thinker who is slowly finding religion and probably is way more religious than he admits this is someone who starts from a religious standpoint but might be more of a of a heretic than he he gives himself credit for and i think it's this book uh the church impotent which i didn't have on my radar at all before like is interesting i have to say how did like, you I, come I, across I it i had never heard of this book before so i came across this and this is why i think it's it's okay to talk about this even though it kind of it hasn't been sort of in the conversation the same way that like Peterson has. Rod Dreher is a really big fan of Hoddles. And I do think that Dreher is one of the... Rod Dreher, a Catholic right-wing influencer. Exactly. Um, big Victor Orban fan, big sort of trad masculinity guy, recently got canceled by the right for extensive writings on yeah, African-American penises. Uh, so, you oh know, my God, I missed that. Oh Jesus, yeah. what? Yeah, no, it's... Um, it turns out his sugar daddy cut him off because of, um, yeah, it, it's worse than he, that. He I mean, was one of these guys fun with a funded right-wing blog, and yeah, then he got yeah. into a, a, like, dick eugenics kind yeah, of a... Yeah, he's a, like he's a dick, dick, he's a dick, yeah. dick eugenics guy. Um, but anyway, so so he's someone who sort of championed Pottles frequently. There are a couple of other sort of less well-known right-wingers who sort of have kept the faith. I don't know much about this author, but like I did also notice that he wrote a book about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. So I haven't read it, so I'm like kind of half worried that it, that he's going to decide it's gay people's fault or whatever. Like, so I, I don't want to like... I guarantee you that's I don't want to recommend yeah. that, but like I have 
have to say anyone who wrote, like, I forget when he wrote it, but like he wrote it early, like not Sinead O'Connor early, but like at a time when like, no matter what your conclusion is, if you draw attention to this problem, like, you know, a little bit of a tip of the hat to, to you and probably a little wag of the finger for what you blame for it, because it's either Betty Friedan or gay people. So like, it's one of those two things, but still like he, he sounded the alarm on this fairly early on. So he's clearly an interesting guy. And willing to be critical of the church hierarchy as he is in the church. Impotent. He is, that's right. So this is a, his big book. It comes out in 1999. Yeah. And it gets basically savaged by other sort of super conservative Catholic venues, which I think is a nice indicator, right? That like, they, these groups, even within these groups, right? They don't mean the only one thing by masculinity, right? Like, so I read one review in Crisis, which is a conservative Catholic lay magazine uh, by Charlotte Allen. What a name for a magazine. It's great, right? Crisis. And that, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Charlotte Allen is a Stanford class of 65, baby. And she absolutely ripped Pottle's book apart, right? So I should mention, Allen is, as far as I can tell, a super conservative Catholic writer. Today, mostly okay. sort of, busy in the transphobia racket. Oh, great. But here she is taking the, the piss out of puddles, right? She's basically thinks this is absolute bunk. And then in First Things, which is like, you know, for those who don't know it, a Christian magazine, so right-wing, uh, it, it openly contemplated armed rebellion over Romer v. Evans uh, in 1996. That was a Supreme Court decision that said that the state of Colorado could not prohibit municipalities from putting sexual orientation provisions, protections into their local yeah. civil rights laws, right? Yeah, exactly. When Larry could no longer be fired for being with Steve, they were like, fuck it, we're we're going we're going full January 6th over here. I should say that they they later, I think, retracted this this op-ed or this story or whatever. But like still, it takes a little something to to print to hit print on that particular thing anyway. And then even in this, you know, pretty right wing outfit, uh, the then associate editor Daniel P. Maloney called the book quote, pretty silly stuff. It's people who are very far to the right thinking that this, particularly very far to the right on gender, thinking this stuff is a little wacky. Yeah. So here's the overall thesis, which I think like, I'm just going to read you the beginning of the book because it's, I, I don't know. I think this is so fascinating because it, it says so much about masculinity and Christianity in the United States. You and I, as critics of the patriarchy, are always like, oh, it's this white Christian patriarchy. And like, Pottle's question is like, wait, how Christian is the patriarchy and how patriarchal is Christianity? And he's like, not enough. Yeah. <laughs> so here's, the, here's the beginning. Despite the constant complaints of feminists, ayo, about the patriarchal tendencies of Christianity, men are largely absent from the Christian churches of the modern Western world. Women go to church, men go to football games. Lay men attend church activities because a wife, mother, or girlfriend has pressured them. So on the one hand, like, I like this opening because on the one hand, you're like, I, I can think of like a million counterexamples. I'm like, have you been to the Vatican? Like it's a bit of a sausage fest over there. Yeah, he's he's talking about a, an institution that worships a God made of, up of three persons, all of whom we are instructed to think of as male. I thought one of them is a bird. Even the Holy Ghost who doesn't, the Holy Ghost doesn't have a corporeal form, but he's still a guy. Is it a male male bird? Male ghost, yeah. Oh. Uh, and then it's also an all male yeah. clergy. Uh, that specifically prohibits women from preaching. Yeah, based on a story about how women fucked it up for all of us and how it brought sin into the world, right? Like, and are bearing the mark because of that. But on the other hand, like, I like it because, like, as a sociological observation, like, it definitely resonates with something, right? Like, the it's figure of the church like, lady is like is, yeah. is definitely a thing, right? Like, religiousness historically has been very a, a very feminized trait. Yeah, early Christianity spread among women in the Roman Empire. 
uh, much more quickly than it's spread among men. And, you know, that's right. A lot of people have converted by their mothers or, yes. or wives, yeah. right? including Emperor Constantine, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, converted by mom. And yeah, the flock is always majority women or, or most yeah. ardently yeah. women. Yeah, which is an idea, by the way, that we will we will return to in Nietzsche. That's one of his critiques of, of Christianity. It's like it's a women's religion. But then the other thing is, he, so Puddles here is like pretty closely aligned with Nietzsche's picture of early Christianity. But what's fascinating is like he Americanizes it in, I think, a very beautiful way, which is to say he's like, but the clergy are kind of nerds and are nerds kind of femi here, quote, the clergy have long had the reputation of not being very masculine. The mainline liberal Protestant minister in the early 20th century had a reputation for being soft and working best with women. It's true, right? Like you're reading, you're spending your day reading and coloring books in your monastery. What are you, some kind of sissy, right? Like like we went out there and we smote people and you went there, you were like, oh, I, I colored a manuscript in purple. Right, like they're not getting eaten by lions like the way, the way they used to. Yeah. He's definitely painting Christian clerics as like insufficiently masculine. They're not performing physical labor. They are interacting yeah. with women too much. I also think it's important to note, even though he mentions Protestants here, I think it's important to note that he's a Catholic. He's criticizing yeah. Catholicism yeah. and Catholic priests have for a long time been sort of snickered at as gay men, even sort of right. apart from right. and beyond the like homophobic panic that resulted from within the church that resulted from the child abuse revelations. Right. This is a, a figure about the priest that predates that. It's like, what are they all doing together in those seminaries where it's just a bunch of right. young men in one dorm room, et cetera. Yeah. Full disclosure, I'm not Catholic. So like, I only see this from the outside, but yeah, this sounds right to me. I grew up Catholic and I go to church like maybe twice a year now. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I still go to church because I'm trying to find a fun gay priest who doesn't seem like a reactionary. Yeah. Nice. I, I, I know a couple <laughs> nice ones. Yeah. The other thing to point out here maybe is that he's also not a fan of Methodism. Like he thinks this has actually infected a bunch of Protestant denominations too. Usually the story about Christianity that gets told is like it was too feminine. It was too feminized. It got like the Catholics got way too into Mary. Usually the Reformation is the part of that story where Christianity is redeemed right. for manhood, but that's not what right. he's doing. History's greatest dick swinging, yeah, exactly. where like someone breaks out a hammer and is like, here are 95 theses that you're all going to hear about, right? Like, get rid of the virgin and we let ministers become married men who get to fuck, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, right, like the idea of the Reformation as kind of a remasculinization is not an uncommon reading and Pottles is not in bad company here. I think that's how Luther thought of it too. But he sees like Methodism also as contaminated. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, certain kinds of Protestants are also too feminine. I want to just briefly show you something like I think very nicely something that you were talking about earlier, which is to say like, where is the fork on the road? Where did we go wrong? According to Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's also fun to see like, where did we go wrong? According to Mr. Pottles, like it's kind of fun. So first idea, right? Like industrialization took women out of the home. Right? That'd be sort of the modernity argument. That'd be probably what Peterson would say. Took women out of the home, put them in the factory, made dating possible, et cetera, et cetera. Put everyone in giant tenement houses in big cities. Boom, right? Tradition's dead. Okay, no, that's not it. Because even in the 19th century, the church was a largely female institution. Throughout the 19th century, women outnumbered men in churches by about two to one, which seems to have been the ratio even during the Second Great Awakening. Okay, so could it be, you might say, the American Revolution, right? Nope, wasn't that either. Perhaps the American Revolution caused a decline in interest in religion among men because republicanism meant the freedom not to defer to traditional hierarchical authority, whether in the form of king, community, scion, or church. He doesn't think that's true. Interest in religion had been weak among men almost from the beginnings of the English settlements. Oh, man. So we've got to keep going earlier. We're going further go back in earlier. time. So maybe it was coming to America. 
getting to meet a whole bunch of people who are not Christian. Is that what did it? Nope. Quote, the Britain from which the American colonists came has long shown a similar lack of male interest in religion. End quote. We're going to keep on rewinding the VHS. It's like, this it's is like, like, yeah, like, <laughs> where like, are no, we at this point? Earlier, earlier, earlier. So I think one, one very simple question for like figuring out, I'll tell you where he thinks we went wrong and it's prepare it not to be a big revelation because like it's pretty nerdy stuff, but it's worth asking like where was religion not kind of femi, according to him? Where where is he like was like, oh that's a that's a dude's religion, right? Like I'm thinking of like medieval mystics, like, oh my god, the anchoress. Hildegard of Bingen? Yeah, like, like... <laughs> Yeah, shoot no, I'm thinking of an English anchoress who wrote that Christ was similar to a mother, that his love was motherly yes, more than fatherly. Yes. A lot of Renaissance depictions of the crucifixion. Yeah. I'm sorry, pre-Renaissance depictions of the crucifixion make the wound look like a vagina. Into, mm-hmm. like actually quite literally a vagina from which like, you know, the soul of humanity is reborn. This like generative power as well as like self-sacrificing love yeah, gets yeah. cast as femi but like like maternal it's it's yeah, jesus's yeah. mommy you know yeah and that's the bride of christ right that there's that too the human soul is the bride of christ, christ the church exactly. is a bride of christ yeah so so i mean spoiler this isn't going to mean much to most of our listeners the the culprit here for him is saint bernard of clairvaux um because Record he like scratch freeze frame i know saint bernard of clairvaux all along you know, yep that's that? me saint bernard of clairvaux. <laughs> you're probably wondering how i got here feminizing the church and so it, it's really weird. Like even I, who like knows fuck all about church history, was like, wait, I also thought like he established a bunch of rules for like male monks to be like more masculine, but whatever. Like also, I think was pro crusade, which I feel like is one of the swoller things Christianity has done. You, you would know? think he would be into the crusades. It's like you yeah. know, masculinize like by colonizing and slaughtering a lot of non-believers. You uh, remasculinize the religion, right? So I think he thinks like apparently, which I didn't know, Bernard of Clairvaux helped legitimate the cult of Mary, a lady for those playing along at dun, home. Dun, dun. And he was apparently very big into this idea of the human soul as the bride of Christ, right? So this idea that like now this devotion to, as you point out, three masculine entities had something kind of gay about it, you know? Mary redeems womanhood from Eve, Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's a big, big sin. No, no, no. You have to keep hating women. We can't have this out yeah, yeah. where we can you know, uh, like them if they're if they're sufficiently virginal and self-sacrificing. We have to hate them all the time. Yeah. So like after that, right, Christianity is all about like the Lord filling you with his love, right? It's about receptivity. <laughs> it's about sentimentality. It's like none of that. As you pointed out, this gets corrected in the Reformation, right? Dude heavy, very active, also very anti-Mary, and then gets reversed right back. And then I should point out that like all the Catholic writers on the right that like respond to this book are like, my man, you could move back. Like 200 years before, 200 years before that, like it's, you just can't do it, right? This doesn't work. It's really kind of interesting, right? On the one hand, right? Like, so he thinks you can make this kind of very, very arbitrary break. Basically the 12th century, I think, for those of you who are not up on your Bernard of Clairvaux trivia, his dates are 1090 to 1153. That's where things went wrong according to this book. But it is worth kind of asking, like, where does he think like religion is still kind of manly? And I think that's, it, it's kind of an interesting question, right? Like one thing that he's clearly got in mind, and this is, I think, where someone like Rod Dreher is an interesting kind of disciple of this kind of view of Christianity. I think one answer must be Eastern Orthodox, 
right? He thinks that that's right. Like it's got a patriarch in Moscow, right? Like it's it's got patriarchy right in the name. Like that's still a, a dude's religion. He also um, Judaism for him comes out of the East. The idea that the real true religions in the East and basically the West has sort of has fallen away and has feminized this institution. You know, there, there are interesting kind of echoes of Nietzsche there too, but Nietzsche means it very differently. And then the interesting thing, given that this thing comes out of 1999, I don't think he mentions Islam at all. And I do think that is something that like conservative Christians in 1999 would have thought of, right? That like, that's a non-feminized religion. That is a religion that like, to their mind, puts women in their place, right? Like, right. and like, why can't we do that? Like, that's interesting here too. But again, I don't want to put words in Pottle's mouth. He doesn't mention it. What exactly are his uh, prescriptions for the church? My guess is he wants certain liturgy and certain emphases to shift, right? Like Peterson is also just trying to like diagnose a, a problem, Right. I think that the kind of barb from Charlotte Allen's review, right, like that he seems to be one of his own statistics of male Christian disaffection. She's got his number. Right. Like in some way, he's saying, like, that's why I'm no longer an enthusiastic churchgoer. Can you blame me? Right. Like it's it is this kind of it's unclear whether he's trying to reverse this trend or justify it, you know, and saying, no, you brought it in yourself yeah. by like all this Mary shit Too too many ladies uh, in, in church. Yeah. It's interesting that you've mention his reverence for like the more masculinized Eastern Orthodox church, because this is something that, you know, as Catholic clergy in America splits between the hard right and the super duper hard right, there are some very conservative Catholics who are now like yeah. refusing. They're only going to Latin mass. They are only taking communion in Eastern Orthodox churches. They're trying to do the reformation yeah. again yeah. In, a, in a miniature way, you know, trying to reform a corrupt institution to make it more conservative, less decadent, yeah. uh, more masculinized. It's something we're recurringly coming back to is masculinity as a kind of purification ritual on the right. I would love to ask a scholar of Orthodox Christianity whether or not this is at all accurate. I wouldn't be surprised at all if this were a pure projection. Yeah. But on the other hand, like this is why a lot of Christian conservatives do look to places like Russia as a model, right? Like this is the idea that religion and society are interlaced in ways that like to them feel traditional or pre-modern, but still Christian, right? Is to them extremely, extremely powerful. So I think there are like three reasons why this book is interesting, even though it's a bit of a footnote. Again, no theologian here, but I don't think the theology of the church impotent is super convincing, but that's because, as you were saying, it is ultimately a psychological theory of manhood. Femininity, he thinks, is all about like envelopment, communion, you know, togetherness, you know, touchy-feely things, right? Whereas masculinity, he says, it's about separation. The more distant a god is, right, like the, the more he models masculinity for us. Right. And and that's very, very noticeable that like that's not, not a theology. And as theology, it's pretty bad. It is a theory of like child rearing ultimately, right? Just to give people an example of what how Pottle sort of arranges this, like he thinks of the crucifixion as just like super butch. This is God separating a part of himself out into the person Jesus. And when that part says, like, 
hey, I don't really want to get nailed to something. Can we skip that part, right? Like my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, right? Matthew 26, 39. There's basically no answer, right? He's like, no, bud, you, you're going to have to do it. Sorry. The agony in the garden, that prayer is not answered. It's like, no, you cannot be relieved from this difficult task. You have to man up and face it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and dad's just not going to be there for it. The crucifixion is also the separation of Christ from mankind it's like you're tearing right. away Absolutely. the savior exactly. he like he comes back but then he leaves you he leaves you twice yeah right which is like you know honestly always the opposite understanding of you know again no theologian i've never been to catholic school i've barely ever even been to catholic church but like i think of the crucifixion as the opposite maybe this is because i've read a lot of simone Weil as like the most absurd gift right? Like that someone could give, right? Like that it's a moment of generosity on such a stupendous and cosmic scale that it kind of mirrors the way that we get to exist. It's like, why the fuck do I exist? That's so cool, right? Like, like it's, it's, this, it's this ultimate gift, but that's not, that's not how he sees it. Totals would say that that is the, the femmed up, weak I know. version of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, Simone Weil, famously weak. About, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> And that it's it's much more about like the the stern father, yeah, foregoing mercy, refusing. And so exactly, you're right. That what's interesting is that this is basically a self help guide for how to be a man, disguised as a history of Christianity. And I think that's something that's true for a lot of conservative writing about gender these days, including someone like Jordan Peterson and you know the Pottles fan Rod Dreher. I think that like a lot of their Christianity is just self-help you know they're asking like oh what is the role of the church in the modern world and really they're saying like i feel myself falling short of certain conceptions of manhood what can i do about that right and i think it's so noticeable right that in 1999 right-wing catholic magazines go out of their way to savage this book right they're so offended by this idea they think this is such bunk they're like the history doesn't work out the theology is bullshit like come on man right and in the intervening you know, 22 years, I think this idea has become way more acceptable because of people like Peterson. Like, I do think that someone like uh, Maloney, right, like, is offended by the idea that you would try to psychoanalyze your own neuroses through the Bible. He's like, this is the, to him, this is the revealed word of God. He's like, You're, this is not about like how, like how to work through shit with your father. I'm sorry, right? It seems the right has turned around on this. Like Peterson's is the same thing, but like it's completely acceptable. Dreyer is the same thing. It's become completely, completely acceptable. There's something very interesting going on here in that regard. It sort of inverts Peterson's idea about submitting to. That's right. That's right. Yeah. A, like power of meaning that is that is greater than yourself, right? And it yeah, turns. Yeah. Christianity's practice of submission to the salvation of Jesus into this much more manly sort of enforcement of divine will. Yeah, yeah. Where Peterson won't acknowledge to himself how much Christianity is in his self-help stuff, Pottles in some way doesn't, or at least the, the, his Catholic critics think, he doesn't acknowledge to himself how much self-help is in his Catholicism. Yeah. So that's the first reason where I think like this is actually an interesting book um, because it shows how far we've traveled and it in some ways sets up things that like have become absolutely widespread in the way we think about masculinity from the right today. The second reason, and this is another one where Pottles may well have been kind of ahead of his time, right? Um, I'm going to quote again from the Maloney Review in First Things, quote, Pottles needs to locate 
the beginning of feminization in the 12th century with Bernard rather than in the fourth with Ambrose or the third with Origen because he wants to show that Christianity is not inherently off-putting to men. That's Maloney in First Things. So that means there has to be, we talked about like how hard it is to sort of say where the wrong turn lies. But there always has to be an origin that was pure. Exactly, right? That's, that's exactly it. There has to be a wrong turn because the essence of Christianity must be masculine and must be swole, right? It cannot be like messiness and complication all the way down. That's right. There has to be a, an original core that is more true than these subsequent complications. Exactly. The idea that maybe this is true, maybe religious devotion has always been coded kind of feminine. Like that's the thing that he can't allow, right? You can hear that story like where you're like, well, yeah. People reading books and whispering to themselves in quiet corners has not been, is not the like butchest thing you can do, right? And like, so yeah, maybe any religious observance has something quote unquote feminine about it or whatever. Like if that's your taxonomy, right? That's the thing he won't allow himself. And it's interesting again, that his reviewers like seem all repelled by this. They're like, no, Christianity is not swole, but I'm sorry, right? Like uh, yeah. you're thinking of, of pumping iron and it's not, this is the Bible, <laughs> right? Um, at the same time, like, I keep thinking here of like, also think of like how Christians reacted to the Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, which was also this, I wonder if like there is something similar in the background there, which was this like reimagining of the crucifixion along Pottle's lines, right? Like as like this- Make it like, a, a masculine- Masculine, like, yeah. yeah, like a weightlifting competition, except bloodier, right? Like this is, it's it's a test of manliness, a te you know, a test of manhood. I, I think that it's, it might well be true that the you know Catholic intelligentsia at the time was like kind of offended by this and thought this was deeply silly, it feels like Pottle probably tapped into something there, right? Because like, I do think that the the Mel Gibson version of this is, is far more acceptable today than it, than it was even when that movie came out. Yeah, it was a uh, it was almost like rubbernecking the pain of the crucifixion. It it made it into this like gory, titillating spectacle because it was so violent. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it that was a move away from the sort of traditional like, okay, I'm gonna go to church where there's like sanctified eucharist on the altar and i'm gonna go pray and like contemplate christ's love as demonstrated in the crucifixion that's a very different exercise and yeah, sitting down yeah. to watch a guy get the shit beat out of him which is what mel gibson's film asked you to do yeah well and i mean that's why it's so interesting that it is a mel gibson film right because like he had gone to that well before right braveheart ends with him being tortured to death what's that one payback or something like that where he gets like just like the shit knocked out of him like mel gibson had yeah. a penchant for this before the passion of the christ which in some way makes the crucifixion scene all the more interesting because like in some way it's saying like it's a test of masculinity jesus christ action yeah He's like buff for the Marvel yeah, franchise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's my second reason where I think like this is actually fairly prescient in that sense that this kind of swole crucifixion or like butch crucifixion like clearly has become more acceptable uh, in certain parts of the right than it was back then. And then the third reason why I think this book is still interesting and we're thinking about and grappling with. So he thinks basically, and this goes back to the point you were making earlier, that the development he's tracing has been bad for Christians. But he also blames all kinds of societal ills on it, right? And I kind of alluded to this. Like at times, his book can read like sort of Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, right? Like, are men okay? Are they, they're not going to church, they're going to football. And then they like, won't talk about their feelings. And then they kill themselves or something. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, you can imagine like a kind yeah. of, you know, a version of that. But at others, he's going much farther. 
blaming essentially nationalism and Nazism on the unmoored men that were no longer served by or attracted to the church, right? This is great because in our episode on Sontag, we had Adrian Rich talking about how patriarchy was central to the rise of Nazism and a, and a core part of, of Nazi ideology. And now here we have Joseph Podol saying that feminization is yeah, the cause yeah. of Nazism uh, and, you know, Nazis always come up eventually. So. All you got, girls were taking up the confessional. So I just walked out of it. It's your fault. Yeah, I just goose-stepped yeah. right Mom, out Mom, you were never church. home yeah. because you were always in church. And so I, 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 I've gone and joined the Nazi party. Uh, on the other hand, so like in this defense, so it's like a little, little silly. On the other hand, it's interesting, right? It's, it's very clearly a kind of church supremacist view. He's like, he's not, right, unlike Rod Dreyer, for instance, he's not not actually comfortable with like a state being oh we'll help you fill the pews right like he's like oh no 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 he does seem to think that like render onto caesar what is caesar's and god what is, what is god's right and then i want to briefly sort of say something a little bit controversial possibly which is like it strikes me that like we on the left tell the story about unions all the time right like men used to hang out in union halls and then like when we like around like not around nazism necessarily but around like right-wing populism right like like, and then when the unions declined, like people went off and like went MAGA, right? Right. Like the sense that there were virtuous institutions that were receptacles for masculinity, right? And that these had to remain appropriately masculine and appropriately powerful to attract. Yeah, to exactly. Them. But there was a decline. And now the men are off using that masculine energy for violence and degradation. That's a, it's a very common story. Yeah. Men without a hobby. The, the man without a hobby theory of fascism. <laughs> like, well, there's also like, this also comes up every now and then after a mass shooting. Mm -hmm. There's like this guy had nothing to do. And the suggestion, it's like always a barely unspoken suggestion, is that this is, that women's advancement, women's pursuit of, you know, self-actualization women's integration to yeah. uh, things like, you know, everything from the church to the education to the industry has like displaced men yeah. and left them without purpose. Yeah. Now that men cannot dominate those institutions, they will secure their domination yeah. with violence. It will be a mass shooting. It will be Nazism. It will be something. And, it, and that's not, that's like always a hostage situation, yeah. you know, a little bit. It's like, let us dominate the world or, or we else. will take that domination by force. Yeah. And there's, this is like, the sense in a lot of these crises of masculinity pieces that we discussed on our last episode, and you know, the sense I think underneath a lot of these like masculinity genre texts we're reading today is like men are somehow dangerous, yeah, and need to be redeemed from their danger, yeah, and especially when they're alone, right? Like we might think that Pottles is a bit of a crank for the Bernard of Clairvaux stuff, but like in his defense, we tell the story of like how unmoored masculine energy not tethered to some kind of community building project is actually really dangerous like and we tell that story all the time right they're like you could have taken him out on a date to the hop right it was either date at the hop milkshakes at the hop or school shooting and you know i i guess i guess you were too good to date him or something like that right like like we, we do this all the time like yeah so it's all your fault yeah the idea that like this kind of radical energy of, of especially young masculinity, like needs binding, like he's not alone in that. It needs management by 
these management yeah. often by women right. or like some kind of sacrifice on women's part in order to contain its danger. Yeah. So maybe that's enough to say about Church Impotent. I, I must admit, I, I had a lot of fun with this book. I always love books that just kind of like have big theses and like are willing to swing for the fences. When a person who's never been to Sunday school in his life can debunk your book, you know, maybe you should have done some more reading. On the other hand, it is very well written. Unlike Peterson, I knew exactly what he was saying. It's beautifully organized. So if people find this uh, an interesting set of ideas to grapple with, I can only recommend it. It's actually, it's a it's a quick and fun read. And I don't know if Mr. Pottles is still alive, but like I come on the pod. We, we, we thought that was, it was pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. We'll have fun with you, Mr. Pottles. Yeah. All right. So um, that's number two. Who's our, our perv? Our pervert is a unique character, very different from Pottles, but maybe not so different from Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. He is a uh, 20th century novelist and a uh, pioneer of new journalism. Adrian, what do you know about this guy named Norman Mailer? I know a little bit. I've read a few novels. I, I don't, I don't think I ever fully, like, you know, I'm not from the United States and like he's always loomed so large for like people studying American literature. And I've, I, I've always only encountered him as like someone, a few of whose books I've read, but like, I know he like looms just like way beyond that. I've read The Naked and the Dead. I've read, I think The Executioner's Song, I've read some of the new journalism stuff though I don't think I've read as much of him as I've read of like Didion or Thompson or Wolf. I remember at some point reading that the, the essay, The White Negro, which like I couldn't make heads or tails of at all. Yeah. It's like one of the most baffling things I've ever read, to be honest. And then I uh, I remember a few years ago noticing that, uh, at least at that time, on his Wikipedia page, the fact that he stabbed his wife uh, was under personal life, which I thought was like pretty telling in terms of how this man's uh, public persona and his, his uh, evident problems with women were sort of... Um, you know, brought into alignment in certain ways. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that he sort of seems to loom loom large for Americans because Norman Mailer was a writer who uh, assigned himself the task of, you know, capturing the mid-century American soul. Right. Uh, His most famous novel, The Naked and the Dead, is his first novel, which is a chronicle of World War II. He did serve in World War II. And he then sort of went on to become... A new journalism, sort of like narrative, novelistic journalism figure alongside the likes of John Didion. He gets compared to Truman Capote a lot in uh, mm-hmm. the style of his nonfiction. But his books sort of got weirder and they got worse as he progressed in his career. And particularly, he got uh, more and more fixated on a sexuality hmm. his sex scenes are many and lurid oh, and that's the other thing i know about him he's won the bad sex writing award a bunch of times yeah yeah and he's he's kind of grouped in with this group of guys group of novelists who are sort of cheekily referred to as the mid-century misogynists so norman miller hmm. henry miller Philip Roth and John Updike are the sort of big four uh, mid-century misogynists. And what sort of really seen Norman Mailer is like Jordan Peterson in that he is a guy of very intense passions and very uh, poorly regulated emotions, who seems like not always entirely in touch with reality. So he, part of his persona that like also became part of his sort of legend around 1960s and 70s New York is that he was kind of like like clearly unraveling really terrible issues with addiction, involuntary commitments things like that. He eventually decamped to Provincetown, Massachusetts. And he uh, is most famous, probably 
to our listeners for this piece called The Prisoner of Sex, which is a book-length essay he wrote in the third person defending himself. Yeah, from I actually have read this, yes. The literary critic Kate Millett, who was uh, sort of one of the intellectual, big intellectual titans of the second wave feminist movement, who wrote a book on misogyny in American literature called Sexual Politics that was d- divided between three authors, one of whom was Norman Mailer. So he was a very avowed anti-feminist. He was also a figure of the political left. He was uh, very staunchly anti-Vietnam War. He ran for the mayor of New York City twice. His first campaign was derailed after he attempted to murder his second wife, Adele Morales, uh, who is a painter and a writer. He stabbed her in the chest and then in the back uh, late at night at a party for his mayoral campaign. And when partygoers tried to help Adele Morales, he pushed them off of her and screamed, let the bitch die. He did not go to prison. He got three years of probation. Wow. By Mailer's own account, this was something that everybody in the literary world kind of shrugged off. Yeah, that's an interesting little bit, right? Like I, at some point during Me Too, I, I remember rereading his account of this. And like, it's very interesting because like, I mean, it's it's the opposite of the, one of those like our cancel stories in the sense that he's like... No, he's like, it didn't matter. Nobody It cared. didn't matter. Um, yeah, in yeah. fact, there's like some really kind of chilling quotes from famous members of his literary community. James Baldwin described it as sort of a psychologically necessary episode for Mailer. Diana and Lionel Trilling both justified the stabbing as an artistic exercise. And Mailer said of himself, the reactions were subtle as hell, Mailer told New York Magazine of his literary community's response to his attempted murder of his wife, Adele Morales. Five degrees less warmth than I was accustomed to, not 15 degrees less five i mean which is you know kind of refreshingly honest yeah refreshingly observation uh like that does seem to be the way my friends were largely chill about the about my attempted murder of of a woman yeah adele morales survived she divorced him and died in poverty they had two children together um and he went on to have that she was his second wife he went on to marry four more times uh, after that. And the, and the Prisoner of Sex, which I, th- I think we're going to be talking about one of his novels, right? Which I haven't read. But The Prisoner of Sex really has, when Mora says like, oh, he was writing to, to, to defend himself against Kit Billet, like, he's just attacking her for like 50 pages. Yeah, no, I'm being generous. He is yeah, like just... virulently misogynist, unhinged, goes off into these long-winded hypotheticals. Uh, yeah. It's not a it's not a document made by a stable no. man. This is something I also like, I also find kind of uncomfortable about talking about with Mailer as well as with Peterson is that these are right. men who are very evidently in the throes of horrific right. addiction. And who are not sane and who are... Yeah, and whose masculinity is clearly bound up with substance abuse too, right? I mean, like, right. yeah. Yeah, so I don't think that, like, this is not something I'm saying to excuse Norman Mailer. Right. Uh, I'm glad he's dead. I wish he'd died sooner <laughs> and more painfully. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, you know, this is somebody who is given a tremendous amount of authority in spite of being very clearly unwell. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think something that like is has recurred in my study of conservative masculinity, the more I, I write about it, is that I find that like a message whose content advances male supremacy and justifies misogyny and anti-feminism will be elevated to credibility even when the actual messenger is like clearly not a person anybody should be listening right. to. Right, right. 
no one uh, cites the scum manifesto as like, you know, straightforward theory. We're always like, yeah, and she also, you know, shot Andy Warhol. So there's that. Yeah. And was living on the street and ranting to herself. You know, this is not somebody who's like a role model. You know, this is somebody who's suffering. I'm seeing why this, why this guy like is a good avatar for this. Cause a, the rest of the world kind of saw him as that and saw it as like, saw a serious intervention, something like prisoner of sex, which like, as you say, like, could just be like, ooh, like we should really get this guy help, right? And then this idea, right? I remember he like called Millet, right? Like um, barren and mediocre, right? This is the charge, right? Feminism is barren and mediocre. And like my violent kind of misogyny is generative and creative, right? right. That's the perv in kind of quintessence, isn't it? And if we're going to dignify the perv with an intellectual history, which I do think he has, he is really this kind of 20th century version of the perv embodied by guys like Mailer is really, they are really sort of riffing on early Freud, right? They are thinking of masculinity as, this is in contrast to Peterson, they're thinking of masculine virility and particularly masculine sexuality as chaotic, uh, as uncontrollable, as containing a darkness, but also necessarily as sort of like generative, enticing and authentic, right? It's like, it's like Satan in Paradise Lost, you know? It's like, this right, is like the right. fun thing that is like a little more interesting and is a lot more interesting and is uh, yeah. like kind of more authentic and in some ways more worthy, but which is suppressed by these civilizational factors. So this is like masculinity yeah. as id and femininity as superego um, in, the, in the perverse conception of the world. The thing about Mailer, his masculinity was very much about like a sort of vulgar but authentic imposition on feminized liberal pro politesse, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is where he reminds me a lot of Donald Trump, right? Like yeah. the I am going to use slurs. I'm going to say what everybody's really thinking. I'm going to disregard bourgeois conventions. And that's how you're going to know that I am virile and true and more real right. than this flimsy bullshit you're getting from the left or in Miller's case from feminism. Barren and mediocre stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So like today I want to talk about tough guys don't dance, which is a 1984 novel don't know from it, Norman yeah. Mailer. It is, it is minor Mailer. It is from later in his career. It is something that he wrote in two months, it's like a murder mystery thriller threat in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where Marilyn was living at the time. And it is all about fucking. It is a, a book about sexual politics. Wait, I'm sorry. Is it, it's, it's set in Provincetown, Massachusetts? And yes. it's all about fucking? It's all about Well, I might like this. <laughs> what? What? There is, there is no such a... thing. <laughs> How dare you schmutz up Provincetown with your heterosexual sex? I know. It's, it's such a tragedy. But like what I, I like pairing this with the Podols because what the church impotent discusses in terms of metaphor, which is like masculinity as this solitary, adventuresome, disciplined force and femininity as like passive, receptive, languid, that... Uh, it's a, it's a it's all metaphor and sort of a stylistic concern for Podols and the church impotent. And for Norman Mailer in Tough Guys Don't Dance, it is just like completely literalized right. as sex itself. And that's like, I think, kind of true broadly for the perv model, right? Yeah. Like, I have to apologize. There's a, kind of no way to talk about the ideas that Mailer is advancing about what masculinity is in this book 
without being really crude yeah. because it's a vision of masculinity that proceeds from the assumption that masculinity and femininity are like metaphors or even destinies that are derived from like the actual mechanics of sexual intercourse, right? So therefore like intercourse is their central site of meaning making and achievement around masculinity. So this is going to be the grossest section of our show today. So like that means for Mailer that like if sex is the metaphor from which masculinity and femininity derive, which I think is actually a pretty foundational claim for a lot of right-wing gender politics, then the way that sex happens is of like massive symbolic importance. Yeah. And like that is realized in the perv model as this vision of masculinity as something that needs to be proven again and again through sex as like a domination exercise. Right, right. Like I sex see. is the point. Fucking is the is what makes you a man, is where you prove that you're a man. Tough Guys Don't Dance follows this guy, Tim Madden, who is like a mailer stand-in. He's this like hard drinking tough guy. And he's trying to make it as a writer in Provincetown. Mean streets of Provincetown. I know. Uh, <laughs> and his background is that he had gone to prison for three years for drug trafficking. And remember mm. that Miller was sentenced yeah. to probation three for three yeah. years for the stabbing. And Madden like wakes up one morning in Provincetown after a night out drinking. He has no memory of the evening before, but he has a new tattoo. The front seat of his car is covered in blood. And he has this ominous sense that something went wrong. So what he does is he drives out to the boonies to this like hole in the ground in the woods where he keeps his pot. He like grows pot in the woods, huh. harvests it, keeps it all in this hole, which is I guess something people did at the time. <laughs> so far it's probably just like a Monday for Norman Mailer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in the hole in the woods, he discovers the severed head of a hot blonde. Oh, okay. So, so this is where the departure comes in, yes. Uh, so Madden believes he's being framed for a murder, and he begins this like quest to solve the murder, piece together the night before, and prove his innocence. And in this sort of quest, he discovers a whole bunch more bodies. I think there's like seven or eight dead people by the end. He and he. Well, how does he? How does he know he didn't do it? Yeah, good fucking question. Um, but he's oh, okay. just like uh, so he 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 understands that everybody is going to assume his guilt, but he has this like conviction that he is not responsible for this woman's death. Yeah, interesting. And that's sort of the like honestly, look like that's kind of the approach he took to the stabbing of Morales. Right, right. He was like, why? He kept being like, why are you bringing this up? Whenever anybody would right. mention it in subsequent years, you would get like so offended. I just found her head in the forest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so like part... Why would you make... Why would, you, why would that connect me to her in any way? <laughs> A big part of the plot is like the vulgarity and the crudeness, right? Like a major plot turning point is that there are all of these photos of the dead woman's corpse in like sexual positions that uh, he discovers you know it's um it like so really, glad i didn't have to read this it I'm really so, goes sorry there. To put you through uh, <laughs> i had actually already read this uh, many years ago uh. but like the crudeness of the book itself and madden's interpersonal crudeness he's also like constantly cursing like one of the ways i found relevant passages that i wanted to talk about on the podcast was that i just like looked at the pdf of the book and i controlled f for like cunt uh and i found like all of the the things like 400 I found yeah, yeah exactly um but like the crudeness the vulgarity this is like a demonstration of the superiority to convention and it's a way that like that the perv shows he is like invulnerable and indifferent to 
like the opinions of those he offends, right? It's like, it is itself a kind of domination exercise. Yeah. And what accomplishes this, like even more often is just like actual literal sex, right? So take, for instance, like one scene when something that had, happens is that Madden sort of pieces together the night before and he remembers being with the dead woman and hanging out with her and her gay male best friend, speaking of fag hags. Mm. So he's like spending some time with this woman and her gay best friend and he winds up i'm just gonna read this i'm sorry i am subjecting you guys to this <laughs> then it seems we were all in my porsche again and on a crazy trip to Wellfleet. once i stopped the car in the woods just before we got to harpo's house and made love to her on the front fender yes because on this morning awakening in the third floor study chair recalling it all i could still feel the grasp of the walls of her vagina on my monster on an erection how i had to fuck her down with Patty Lorene. Patty Lorene is the uh, main character's uh. ex-wife who has just left him a few weeks before. It was as if Jessica and I had been designed in some heavenly shop, part for part. Our privates were inseparable. And where was Lonnie but watching? He was crying, if I remember. And I never felt more of a brute. His misery was as good as blood to my erectile tissue. That was the state of my affections nearer to four weeks after being deserted by my wife, right? So like masculinity here it contains of this like irrepressible sexual force right sort of referencing back to the nature he talks about design and sort of like fulfilling a destiny in that sense but then it also has to have an audience of somebody who is inadequate right right, uh, right. or who is like less masculine and like the the gay best friend i think is what really makes this scene right like the gay, the gay man crying <laughs> at, uh, because he can't be masculine in the same way that Tim Madden is, right? So like masculinity here is performed like on women's bodies, performed by fucking them. And the performance has a meaning that is meant to be conveyed to right. others. The ex-wife. In yeah. a sense, like both like his ex-wife and like the whole novel, like Miller did write this after the dissolution of his forced marriage that had sort of like long been on again off again with his actress and they finally divorce in 1980 and he's writing this like a year or two after that and the whole novel is kind of like this pornographic revenge fantasy about his yeah. fourth wife she's like oh i got you know, it easy get stabbed, so i guess she won <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like henry the uh wife who like didn't yeah. get her head cut off so i think like patty lorene is one audience jessica the woman he's fucking is one audience but i really think the most important audience is to the, the defective man masculinity yeah. is the other man yeah. the defective yeah. man so lonnie the gay best friend he witnesses madden having sex and is reduced to tears because we are made to understand he is so ashamed that his homosexuality means he will never be a real man like Madden, like Norman right. Miller. Um, and Lottie actually shoots himself in the head thereafter. He's so wrecked by his comparative inadequacy. Right. He's he's so blown away by his masculinity that he's like... I gotta blow my brains out. He shoots himself out. in the head. Jesus yeah. Um, and that means like both of the actual in-person witnesses to Madden's like sexual accomplishment here. They both wind up dead by the end of the night. Um, ah. Like that's how powerful his dick is. So a continuation of this idea of fucking and its audiences as like sort of necessary to create masculinity comes in this other passage uh, I want to read you, like, particularly because like the sense of the perv masculinity is always be requiring an audience and always being in competition with other men, but having this like field and sort of like sight of competition as being on women's bodies, right? Yeah. So Madden is like pretty clearly, as I've said, just a stand-in for Norman Mailer. And one of the ways that you can tell this is because Madden, the character, will just like monologue in ways that give voice to Mailer's personal grievances. 
So it's like the summer population of Provincetown is annoying. Provincetown is only nice in the winter when nobody's there. Feminists are ugly. They don't paint their nails. That's when he comes back to. It's stuff like that. Um, mm. And my favorite, I think the most illustrative. Profound shit. I know. Yeah, it's really important. I'm so glad he got paid for this book. But I think like the one is where like you can see just Mailer just being like professionally jealous of John Updike. <laughs> Uh, and like complaining about John Updike. So like Madden is nominally supposed to be an, a writer, which allows him to give voice to this little monologue. Updike is one of the few writers who can enhance his work with adjectives rather than abuse it. He has a rare talent, yet he irks me. Even his description of a pussy, it could e as easily be a tree. And in parentheses, the velvetteen of moss in the ingathered crotch of my limbs, the investiture of algae on the terraces of my bark, etc. Just once I would like to have him guide me through the inside of a cunt. Right now, for instance, my mind is pondering the difference between Updike's description of a pussy and a real cunt. That is, the one I am thinking of at this instant. It belongs to Madeline Falco, and since she is sitting next to me, I need only reach over with my right hand to feel the objective correlative on my fingertips. Still, I would rather remain in the simpler state of a writer in reverie. Being nothing if not competitive, as which unheralded writer is not, I am trying to put the manifest of her cunt into well-chosen words, and so implant a small standard of prose on the great beachhead of literature. Therefore, I will not dwell on her pussy hair. He actually does dwell on her pissy hair. Uh, for Spoiler alert. Paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ron, Ron Howard narrator voice. He did. <laughs> Uh, but that's not important. What is actually important, I think, is that Miller is showing us here that like his competition with Uptyke is a competition for manly status. And it's happening like, you know, he gives this metaphor of like, I'm implanting a standard of prose on the great beachhead of literature. It's like yeah. a masculine colonial metaphor. But the place where this like colonial, like masculine military competition is taking place is like literally inside of a vagina. Right. Yeah. Um, so masculinity here is like, it's a competition. It's Miller versus Updike that it's fought out on the terrain of a woman's body. So yeah. women are like, the, the metaphor you'll hear feminists use about this is that like men are playing a game against each other and women are the ball getting kicked back and forth. Like women's bodies are sites where men demonstrate their masculinity to a, an audience of one another, right? It's the beachhead where the standard of manliness gets implanted. Right, right. And I want to dwell for a second, not just on like how dehumanizing this vision of masculinity is to women, right? Like you're literally objectified, you're made into like a place or a ball. And that's like, I, I don't want to like act like that's not the central problem of the perversion of masculinity uh because that's definitely like the main thing that's wrong with it is that it requires women to be objectified and instrumentalized and used by men for the gratification of their own egos for the witness of other men in this like narcissistic self-defining project like that's the main thing that's wrong with it um that's very gross but i also like think it's really interesting like how needful and dependent this vision of masculinity yeah. is uh, you need other people's bodies to achieve it, and you need other men to see you doing it. It's right. always like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Are you Updike, where are you? Yeah, like, look at me, like, finger this lady at a bar, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's just like, it's so, it's like kind of- Or in my blood-spattered Porsche, pathetic. apparently? I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. It's like, it's, it's decidedly a relation of anxious dependency. It's yeah. not an inner resource. Um, it's like something you're doing outside of yourself. We have, again, sort of this difference between what does he really mean, right? Like with Peterson, it was like metaphor versus what he really thinks. And here it's basically, right, like 
it's easy to imagine like, I, you know, being in the business of literary criticism, I can tell you what someone's defense of this is going to look like, right? I can guess but if people reviewed this, like, as not like just utter garbage, what they would say is, right, like, oh, you know, you have to point to all the differences between Mailer, the author, and the figure that he's created for himself, and he's actually reflecting self-ironically on his own uh, masculinist obsessions, right? Like, am I, am I guessing right that this that there are people defending it this way? That's more or less the Mailer defense, yeah. yeah. Except, I mean, he doesn't really allow you to do that because he's out there in real life stabbing his wife. Right, you know but he I mean? says like, right, but he says something like, where is it? Um being nothing if not competitive as which as which unheralded writer is not, right? Like, I was like, oh, I'm not Norman Mailer. I'm unheralded writer, quote, you know, Mormon Mailer, right? <laughs> like, it's, like they're, they're, he builds in some plausible deniability. But of course, as you're pointing out, I, I always hate when people make that argument because like, you're not saying, oh, this character is held up as like being awesome and therefore Norman, like, and therefore it's like rebarbative that Norman Mailer is putting this out there. It's to say, the overall claim, which is that John Updike's knowledge of female anatomy makes him inadequate and he should just like, watch someone, another man fuck a woman in order to like get better educated about it, like is basically like that's yeah. played for that's played straight. That's the, the book doing that. That's not actually like so I, I think that's really interesting too, that like, you know, it has this kind of like I mean, I guess I'm thinking here of someone like Brett Easton Ellis, uh, who like, you know, who who always sort of brings in this like, well, people didn't get that it was satire. It's like, yeah, but there are those readers. That's true. But there are also like a satire still transports values. And you're absolutely right that the that the values transported by this book are independent of how whether or not it regards, you know, this Madden guy as like particularly positive or negative, right? Right. You know, it reminds me of this sort of like relationship of the work to irony always reminds me a little bit of the Stanford prison experiment, which was nominally a bit of research into the psychology of people who commit cruelty. Right. But in the process of conducting that research, the researchers actually committed torture, like torture happened. Right. It's a little bit of like, it's like, well, you know, if I have a, enough ironic detachment, does that absolve me from the action or from the professed value? And I'm like, I'm not sure that it does. I, I don't think that no, that's exactly. like the, the loophole out that uh, people like Miller and his defenders would maybe like it to be. Yeah. So like yeah. this kind of masculinity as enacted through like, sexual domination also leads men to be vulnerable to be being like demasculinized through sex right and in one of the novels like really most like on the nose like what did your daddy not love you enough scenes madden is reunited with his emotionally distant father who he sees this as like paragon of masculinity right like this is the guy that madden madden is like more of a man than john updike but madden is less of a man than madden's own father right mm -hmm. and he proves his own manhood by informing his dad that while he was in prison he was never sexually penetrated by another man i worried about you maybe you didn't have to i took my three years in the slammer without a fall they called me iron jaw i wouldn't take cock good for you i always wondered like Yikes. Mailer, who like he never actually went to prison yeah. right uh he never actually got any prison time for his attempted murder of Adele Morales, that was in 1960. So it's like about 20 years ago by the time he's writing Tough Guys Don't Dance. 
but he had been fixated on this notion of prison sex and its possible threat to his own masculinity yeah. for a long time. And we're probably going to do a whole episode on the prisoner of sex at some point. But yeah, that that's also that's another one where like yeah, yeah, it makes uh, explicit this idea that penetrating others is the act that constitutes the creation of masculinity and that being penetrated constitutes femininity. I, I looked over my notes on The Armies of the Night, which is another one of mailers that I've read in preparation for this. And there's another passage like that. I'll read this to for people. Yeah. Uh, don't be weirded out by the fact that Mailer shows up in the third person. He writes about himself. He does that a lot. Yeah. Uh, in the third person all the time. All right. <clears throat> Onanism and homosexuality were not to Mailer light vices. To him, it sometimes seemed that much of life and most of society were designed precisely to drive men deep into onanism and homosexuality. One defied such a fate by sweeping up the psychic profit which derived from the existential assertion of yourself, which was a way of saying that nobody was born a man. You earned manhood provided you were good enough and bold enough. So like first of nice reference to Simone de Beauvoir, yeah. <laughs> uh, weirdly enough, but also, um, yeah, it's like th this idea that like masturbation and, and homosexuality are sort of like, they're the wrong turns you can take. And, and basically that's how you, you, you earn manhood by steering clear of that is clearly um, all over his. Uh, yeah. And by focusing that particularly, like not just, it's not a, it's not a masculinity of abstention or of, no. yeah like discipline it's a masculinity of sort of explosive impulse right um not yeah, to, like yeah. put too fine a point on it and i think that actually might be a better quote to use because it then then the one i was going to use from prisoner of sex because it sort of gestures us towards something you see like throughout the porn masculinity genre which is this like latent mournfulness or this like suggestion of of like grief so mailer at one point or madden rather at one point notes that his father this like masculine ideal had a lot of sex with a lot of different women and that it was a point of pride for him to actually never kiss these women is that like i don't have to show them any tenderness at all so like mm. at first glance this just seems like straightforward boorish sadism but then mailer goes on to like cast it as this like self-imposed deprivation right so madden speculates that this is because this father was a child uh never was never kissed the his mm. severe Irish mother never kissed him. Of course, he was famous among his friends for such an ascetic view. In longshoreman days, he had earned another legend for the number of women he could attract and the powerful number of times he could do it in a night. All the same, it was his manly pride that he was never obliged to kiss the girl. Who knows what ice room of the heart my skinny Irish grandmother raised him in. He never kissed. <laughs> and so like, this is a, a lot of like the other note in a lot of these perv masculinity narratives that I think links it a little bit to... The preacher, like yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually something like, abstemious the about it. Yeah, masculinity. Yeah, kissing girls isn't that kind of gay, fellas? Right, you're not allowed to do that uh, because you're depriving yourself of that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like this yeah. domination and degradation inflicted by the perf masculinity. Like really, it's basically yeah, yeah. just like sexual violence as the pinnacle of manhood, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and that is in fact depicted as a kind of sacrifice, right? It's something that the perv guy like Miller will claim that they feel they must do on some level in spite of themselves to right. prove that they are men when they suggest a more indulgent, more feminine ethos would involve like comfort and tenderness that they are like uh, abstaining from. Yeah. And like, frankly, I don't buy it. <laughs> I want to like yeah. underline that I don't buy it. Um, I don't see rapists as like victims of masculinity or suffering from a lack of love or just needing a hug. But I think it's interesting that Miller 
and a lot of his perf masculinity fellows like this is also kind of an, a, a major theme in portnoy's complaint which is right. the other big like urtext of the perf masculinity although a lot more masturbation in that one right yeah he's like sort of more reveling around in his degradation yeah but like kind of enjoying being degraded yeah. uh yeah. but in tough guys don't dance it's seen as like kind of more pure yeah but like it's interesting that these guys see it this way they feel that they have to portray their like incessant pervy like rapacious violent sexuality as in fact like this kind of sacrifice and and this is like something that's i think common to all these styles of masculinity right i was gonna say right yeah they depend on like depicting the masculine subject as somebody who sacrifices and deprives himself so even if to all intents and purposes like the perv is on this like endlessly self-gratifying quest to like prove himself through sex and violence we are made to understand that this is actually a kind of self-denial and that he is a martyr of some form yeah and all three of ours and maybe this is sort of where we can start concluding but like um all three of these styles seem for all the kind of strength they assign to masculinity are so fussy about policing the fucking boundaries, right? Like, oh, they're so it, anxious. I'm going to church. Yeah. Does that mean I'm a, I'm I'm too much of a lady? I'm you know, uh like, oh I I enjoyed the darkness. Is that bad? Like I didn't clean my room. Oh no, am I not enough of a man? Right? Like I like you have to guard, you know, your 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 women your vaginal knowledge, apparently, your your asshole, right? All this stuff you have to like guard the hell out of. It, I mean, like it just feels like a fuck ton of work to be any kind of man on this on this model. And it's so insecure. I know. It's like everybody has to see me being a man. I have to do it perfectly. You know, it's just like it's um, yeah. it's really whiny <laughs> and like bitchy, <laughs> uh, and and it requires so much. Right. And exactly. Right. I mean, like, I, I hadn't caught that before, but like, right. The fact if he said like, look, I, I did not become a victim of sexual violence and in prison, like whatever, like that's that I, I, I could see why someone would say that. But like, he's like, oh, no, I was so famous for it. They had a name for me. It's like, oh, my God, like you yeah, always yeah. need a fucking and now audience for like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I never thought about that. Yeah. Jesus. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm going to call a, a C-SPAN call-in show next to explain it. Right. Because I need everyone to know. Right. It's like. It, it, I loved his dad going, I always wondered. It's like, you did? <laughs> like, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, like, I always wondered if you disgraced me and my manhood, because that's also implicated in your, you know, sex life. You oh, know? I see. Uh, I, 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 I guess this is where I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just not in that type of masculinity. <laughs> I thought it was genuine worry. Yeah, no, it's um, it's like so. It sounds like no wonder these guys feel so aggrieved and victimized because this sounds like a lot of hard fucking work. Uh, for not, it's not clear like exactly yeah. what payoff. And I mean, to to harken back to a line from our friend Midge Dector, right? Like. They have made in every conceivable way an enormous issue out of it. They're just like, <laughs> oh boy. I mean, like, look, if if you have some neuroses about gender roles, like it's a complicated fucking subject. Like, I understand that people do it all kinds of different ways, but like, holy shnikes, do these people sort of yeah, why do they always need an audience? Why does this need to like, you know, why wh why does it have to be dragged out into these massive things? Like it's just, you know, the fact that like you can't live it. You got to be seen living it and by like the biggest possible audience. Like it seems so yeah, so you know, the, noticeable the here. The preacher needs his like dominion, his family 
his wife, his, you know, religious community. He needs them to see him being righteous and to submit to his righteous authority, right? Right. A creep needs to be, you know, vindicated in his sense of like a grieved, wounded superiority and like have other people applaud his discipline or his like demonstrated like genetic superiority or whatever the chosen like vehicle is, you know, like everybody needs a gold star. And the creep needs to quote that brilliant tweet about Elon Musk, like what are there like hundreds of millions of followers who if you you know slam your slam your dick into a car door they're like well played <laughs> sir. Yeah, I wish I wish all of these guys would relax a little bit and like yeah. maybe lay off the bend though. Yeah, you know, if 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 these 2 hours have been good for nothing <laughs> else, it's like guys, guys relax you're, you're you're okay you're okay yeah, relax you don't need to do this not you don't need to do any of this <laughs> yeah if we if we had to sum up what we just said it was oh sweetie no <laughs> <laughs> all right well i think we've been through it is this a good place to wrap up this is a good place to wrap up we have uh, ex- a journey we have yeah. exceeded uh, our usual time limit which is already ample uh and we uh and yeah we've been on a journey i mean where haven't we been <laughs> You know, we've been in, to Wellfleet, Massachusetts. We've been to Clairvaux. Uh, we've we've seen Marduk. Apparently, yeah. brings light. Shit. We've been to Toronto. We uh, followed Rod Dreher into penis measuring territory. I mean, uh, we've taken you on a journey. We've taken each other on a journey. And now I need a long fucking shower. And uh, with that, uh, we are in bed with a right. In Bed with the Right, would like to thank the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research for generous support, Jennifer Portillo for setting up our studio. Our theme music is by Katie Lyle. Our producer is Megan Kalfas. <laughs>